This morning's Advent message is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. This morning's message is titled, God's Goodness Post-Fall, because I think that to fully appreciate the amazing gift of Christ, we have to understand where it all began. And so we are still in the garden this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our God and King, merciful Father, Lord, we pray that as we read over this extremely tragic and painful event in the history of the world. Lord, we pray that through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to see your goodness even in this tragic event. We pray that you would enable us to see how all of Scripture ultimately points forward to the coming of the Messiah. And Father, we pray that through it all, you would deepen our love and appreciation for you and for your Son and for your Holy Spirit, and that we would go away from this place desiring to worship you and to serve you and to honor you more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The uh, late... 18th century colonial clergyman or minister by the name of Mather Biles, uh, who did not support the American uh, Revolution. Uh, when he was asked, he was once asked why he did not support the American War for Independence, famously said, quote, which is better to be ruled by one tyrant 3,000 miles away or by 3,000 tyrants one mile away. In other words, Biles wisely understood that it is human nature to believe that if we would only take matters into our own hands, we can improve our lot. Humans tend to think that way. If we would take matters into our own hands, if we would do things ourselves, we can make things better for ourselves. When the reality is that humans tend to make things worse 
when we take matters into our own hands. This has often been seen with regards to socialism. Uh, at least this is true, this has been true in the United States and is true of our current government, um, that the United States government has never gotten involved in any form of private industry and made it better than it was before. They always tend to make things worse. Mather Biles, being a minister, may have been drawing his conclusions from the book of Genesis, from the fall of Adam and Eve, because Adam and Eve thought that they were going to improve their lot. They thought they were going to make things better for themselves, but rather they made things worse. They wanted to be free, but became slaves of sin and Satan. They desired to be wise, but became fools. They desired true happiness, but instead incurred misery. They thought they would sit upon their own throne, but instead they were expelled from the garden. They thought that they would become like God, but were expelled from the presence of God. They failed to gain something they did not have. They found nothing but lost everything. The irony is that ever since that fateful day, man has been trying to get back to the garden ever since. Our U.S. Declaration of Independence, for example, states that we believe that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the American dream, after all. Yet, because of the fall of Adam, all men are without true life, which can only be found in Christ. We have no liberty as we are all in bondage to sin. And true happiness can only be found in God, which remains elusive because sin separates us from God. In the end, one could argue that the American Revolution was fought in an effort to return to Eden. But we have not found it, and we have not recovered it. But returning to Eden can never be accomplished by our own efforts, nor will it ever be realized in this lifetime. Someday it will. Someday it will, but the question is when and how. How and when will we return to Eden? And that's the subject of the message this morning. Last week we looked at the tragic fall of Adam and Eve, and we saw that even in the midst of God's anger and wrath, his anger is tempered by grace. We saw God's goodness revealed in the fall, that in the midst of cursing the serpent, God makes a promise to someday send a redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent and begin to undo what man has ruined, begin to reverse the curse. 
Last week we saw God pronouncing a curse upon the serpent, the man and the woman. And today we see God taking action against them. Last week it was verbal, speaking curses over them. But today we're going to see God actually taking action against them. Today we see God's judgment on Adam and Eve. Banishment from the, the presence of God. In verse 21 we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Recall that back in verse 7 we read that when they became aware of their nakedness, of their sinfulness before each other and before God, somehow they fashioned together garments made out of fig leaves. Which makes sense. If you've ever seen fig leaves, they are large leaves. If you're going to pick leaves to make clothing out of, fig leaves would probably be ideal. However, ever since that day, humans have continued to do the same. We continue making every effort to make a covering for ourselves. A covering for our nakedness, a covering for our sinfulness. Not merely an external covering of clothing, but through man-made religions. Attempting to cover our sins. Attempting to cover our nakedness before God. But of course, that'll never work. It'll never do. And so we're told in verse 21 that God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So here we see God doing. Think of it. God himself makes clothing for them out of animal skins. And then we are told that he put these garments on them. He clothed their nakedness. The question is this, where did these skins come from? These are clearly animal skins. Thus, the implication is that God had to put to death. God had to sacrifice, as it were, an innocent animal who had nothing to do with what Adam and Eve had done in order to cover their nakedness. It's interesting that this same sort of language is used later in the Pentateuch. When talking about the animal sacrifices that we see in the temple and what these sacrifices were intended to do. Thus, for example, in Leviticus chapter 16 when it describes the great day of atonement where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies just once a year in order to atone for all of the sins of God's people. We're told that the high priest would take the blood of the sacrificial goat and he would make an atonement. That's what the English says. He would make an atonement for the sins of God's people. The Hebrew word for atonement there is the word kafar. It literally means a covering. He would take the blood of the sacrificial animal and he would make a covering for the sins of God's people. Thus, the life of an innocent animal is taken in order to provide a covering 
for the nakedness of God's people. Of course, we understand from Hebrews chapter 10 that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Rather, in those sacrifices, there was designed to simply be a reminder year after year, month after month, week after week of the sinfulness of God's people and the fact that they were in desperate need of a true Redeemer, of someone who could truly atone and once for all cover their sins and deliver them from God's judgment. The author of Hebrews goes on to tell us in that same chapter of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ is the one true Lamb of God whose death provides a true and permanent covering for our sins. Thus, God killing an innocent animal in the garden to make a covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness ultimately points forward to the coming of the Lamb of God who was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, who would ultimately be killed by God to provide a covering for our sins. Scripture tells us in Isaiah 53, for example, verses 4 to 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ, who was born in Bethlehem, is the Lamb whose precious blood and perfect righteousness provides a perfect and permanent covering for our sins. To hide our nakedness from the eyes of a holy and just God. And God does that. God does that for us. God clothes us. God provides the animal sacrifice, as it were, to make a covering for our sins. Then in Genesis 3:22, if you're following along, we read this. And the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil." Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword and that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Several things are going on in this text that are <clears throat> worth pointing out. <clears throat> the first is that Scripture says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Who is the us? Who is he talking about? Is he referring to the angelic hosts who are watching? I think the us echoes the language of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Which in turn, I think, refers back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, from the very beginning, we are told that there are at least two persons who are involved in creation. God the Father and God the Spirit are involved in creation. Then, in the opening words of John, we will come to realize as redemptive history unfolds that there are three people who are involved in the creation of all things. That is God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Though a Trinitarian understanding of the Godhead was non-existent in the Old Testament for sure, Moses and the Israelites, you know, we tend to not give them as much credit as they are due. They are humans every much as we are humans, and they have a mind and a level of intelligence that we possess even today. And I think Moses and the Israelites were certainly intelligent enough to comprehend the concept of plurality within unity. They would have seen, just as I saw, the us is a reference to Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. I'm not the first person to figure that out. I think Moses and the Israelites would have figured that out. They would have understood the Spirit of God becomes a partner with God the Father in creation. Thus, let us make man in our image, and man has become like one of us, is minimally a reference to God the Father and God the Son. Of course, we now know from the opening words of the Gospel of John that it is a reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In other words, the toddler now has a scalpel, is what he is saying. A scalpel in the hands of a trained surgeon, as I said last week, can be used for great good and great healing. But a scalpel in the hands of a toddler is dangerous because he has no idea how to handle it. He has no idea what it is used for. He has no idea how to use it for good and not for evil. A scalpel in the hands of a toddler is beyond his control. It is beyond his ability. 
Because God is good and evil clearly exists in the world, evil existed before the fall because Satan was in the world. God is good and evil clearly exists in the world. This means that God is able to use evil toward a good end. God uses evil to bring about good for our good and for his glory, but man only knows how to use evil for evil. Man only uses evil toward evil ends. And thus, God's concern is that if they reach out and take and eat from the tree of life, they and their posterity will live forever in sin. There will be no redemption. So what God does, banishing them from the garden, placing a sword in front of the tree of life, as heartbreaking as that would have been for Adam and Eve, it was for their good. Remember that the next time God is walking you through the valley of darkness. Whatever God brings us through, it is always for our good, no matter how evil or dark it may seem. Of course, this raises an interesting question. Were they able to eat from the tree of life prior to the fall? There is debate on this, but I think that they were able to eat from the tree of life prior to the fall for one simple reason. Genesis 2.16. There, God specifically tells them, quote, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. You may eat of every tree, save one, right? Save one. It is highly unlikely that God created the tree of life after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He then creates the tree of life and says, oh, let's not let them eat of that. Very doubtful that that is what took place. Thus, they were allowed to eat from every tree in the garden. Presumably, this includes a tree of life. It may be, it may be that the tree of life is what gave them eternal life. That as they continued to eat from it and all the other trees, they derived eternal life from that and, of course, from obedience to the one command. This is all open to debate. Still, we are left with the question, why was there a tree of life in the first place? I mean, why did God not simply supernaturally sustain them eternally unless they disobeyed? Why, why was there a tree of life to begin with? The honest answer is that we really don't know. There is not enough information in the text for us to know with certainty why there was a tree of life to begin with. But here's what we do know, is that there was a tree of life, and had they eaten from it, they would have lived eternally in sin. And so we are told that God, quote, sent them out from the garden. Some translations word it that way, sent them out from the garden. I think your most recent ESV translations, they've, they've uh, 
updated it. Uh, some of the older ESV translations say sent. But now they have drove, and that is really more accurate because the Hebrew word uh, in the text is in the PL form. Uh, most uh, Hebrew verbs are in the present active cal form, uh, Q-A-L. Uh, it's how it's spelled. But when it's in the PL form, all that simply means is that the word takes on a more intensive translation. So, for example, the Hebrew word shabar is the word uh, broke. It's the word for he broke something. But if that word appears in the PL, then it would mean something like he smashed it or he crushed it. Thus, we have that the word sent the word shalak, which means to send in the Hebrew, is in the PL form. Thus, a more accurate translation is that God drove the man out of the garden or he shoved him out of the garden. The implication is that man did not want to go. He was probably terrified about what is out there. I have to fend for myself now. I'm being driven out of the garden. I don't want to go. But God, a loving, merciful, and kind God, says, you must go. And he drives him out of the garden. How horribly sad that event must have been. You know, we've all made mistakes that we regretted the rest of our lives. I can't imagine Adam regretting for 900 years what he has done. He had become an enemy of God. And then God places a cherubim, an angel, with a flaming sword, turning every which way to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden and the tree of life. It's important to note that when God gave Moses instructions on constructing the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 24, we're told that on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat, which was considered to be the very throne of God, on either side there were angels with their wings going across the mercy seat touching their tips in front and behind the mercy seat. In other words, guarding access to the throne of God. We're also told in 1 Kings chapter 6 that when Solomon constructs the temple, he lines the inside of the temple with, with cedar wood, and then he engraves, he has engraved into the cedar wood images of palm trees and blooming flowers and gourds. And then, before you pass through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, there were two ginormous statues made out of olive wood. They were 15 feet tall, and they were two angels. Their wings were seven feet long. One wingtip touched the side of the inside of the temple wall. The other wings touched each other, and then the wing of the other angel touched the other side of the wall. Standing guard before you pass through the curtains into the Holy of Holies. The idea is that the inside of the temple was designed 
to remind the people of the garden. To remind the people of paradise lost. It was to remind them that the garden was a place where man once dwelt with God. And now we need a mediator. The high priest is the only one who can enter into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies and only after he has offered a sacrifice to atone for his own sins and then he goes in to offer a sacrifice in order to atone, in order to make a covering for the sins of God's people. The entire sacrificial system was designed to remind the people of Israel that they needed someone to stand in the gap between God and man. They needed someone to mediate on their behalf. That they need a sacrifice to make a covering for their sins, to cover their nakedness, so that once again they might dwell in God's presence. But man on his own can never do this. Access to the tree of life has been blocked until the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. At the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, his father, proclaims and prophesies concerning Christ And he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies. Those enemies being sin, death, and the burden of the law. Then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeems us from the curse. He redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, from sin, from death, by being hung on a tree. And thus, it is to this tree that we must come by faith in order to have eternal life. Christ becomes the tree of life. Christ becomes the tree of life to which we are given access by faith. Faith. No longer is there a cherub and a flaming sword moving every which way, guarding access to the tree of life. Instead, Christ says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul. Do you find living life exhausting? Do you find it tiring? 
Jesus says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ, the tree of life, bids us come. Come to him and eat freely and have life in yourself. Have eternal life. Christ was born into the world to be our great high priest, to mediate for us, to stand in the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of what Christ has done, Adam was driven from the presence of God, but because of what Christ, the second Adam, has done, we are told, let us with confidence draw near into the presence of the living God. Christ is also the Lamb of God. He is the tree of life. He is our great high priest. He is the Lamb of God. Just as an animal had to be killed back in the garden in order to make an adequate covering for Adam and Eve, so also Christ had to die. An innocent sacrifice. In order to make a covering for our sins and for our nakedness. And now fast forward to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, Scripture says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God once again is with man. And then in Revelation 22 verses 1 to 4, Scripture says, And the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. There it is again. We see it at the beginning. We see it at the end. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves, in other words, it's always producing fruit. Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. 
they will see his face, the face of God. Christ will ultimately, Christ will ultimately undo what man has ruined. Someday, those who have trusted in Christ, those who have placed faith in Christ as their, as their Lord and Savior, will live once again in the garden wrapped around the world. It will be a worldwide garden. We will once again eat from the tree of life at leisure. And we will see God face to face. We will dwell with God once again in person, just like Adam and Eve dwelt with God in person. So when we celebrate Advent, we are not just looking back and celebrating the first Advent of Christ, as the word Advent means coming. We are also looking forward in great anticipation to the second advent of Christ, the day when the king will return and he will once for all wipe out the enemies of God's people. He will completely undo what Adam has ruined and restore the garden around the world. And we will live with God. Christmas is about celebrating the coming of the king. Someday the king will come again. Christmas is about celebrating Christ, the tree of life and the lamb of God who provides a true and everlasting covering for our nakedness. Let's pray. Our gracious, merciful Father, we stand amazed by your goodness, your grace, and your mercy in providing for us through your Son the covering that we so desperately need to hide our sinfulness from your eyes. So, Father, we pray that um, as we continue this month to celebrate the advent of Christ, Lord, we pray that we would celebrate not just his first advent, but we would look forward with great excitement and anticipation to his second advent. And we pray that you would remind us daily that this time of the year is not about decorations or cards or finding the right gift for that particular person, but ultimately it's about worshiping our God and our King who was born and lain in a manger 2,000 years ago for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.